because my text is in the Old Testament, and because this is the only Pentecost sermon you'll have today, we're going to take the time to read Acts 2, the first 21 verses, so that we have the story of Pentecost before us again, and then we'll read also out of the Old Testament. Acts 2, 1 through 21. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. There appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance." There were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And They were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue, wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia, and in Judea, and Cappadocia, in Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, in Egypt, and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews, and proselytes, Cretes, and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed, and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others, mocking, said, These men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This far in Acts 2, now we'll read Numbers 11, verses 10 through 30. The last seven verses that we read, 24 through 30, are our text, and we will not read them a second time. In the earlier part of chapter 11, the part that we won't read, the people are complaining to Moses because they do not have all of the fine foods that they had in Egypt, and the people despise the manna. 
And then Moses heard the people weep throughout their families, every man in the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly. Moses also was displeased. And Moses said unto the Lord, Wherefore hast thou afflicted thy servant? And wherefore have I not found favor in thy sight, that thou layest the burden of all this people upon me? Have I conceived all this people? Have I begotten them that thou shouldest say unto me, Carry them in thy bosom as a nursing father beareth a sucking child unto the land which thou swearest unto their fathers? Whence should I have flesh to give unto all this people? For they weep unto me, saying, Give us flesh that we may eat. I am not able to bear all this people alone, because it is too heavy for me. And if thou deal thus with me, kill me, I pray thee, out of hand, if I have found favor in thy sight, and let me not see my wretchedness. And the Lord said unto Moses, Gather unto me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom thou knowest to be the elders of the people, and officers over them, and bring them unto the tabernacle of the congregation, that they may stand there with thee. And I will come down and talk with thee there, and I will take of the Spirit which is upon thee, and will put it upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with thee, that thou bear it not thyself alone. And say thou unto the people, Sanctify yourselves against tomorrow, and ye shall eat flesh. For ye have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Who shall give us flesh to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you flesh, and ye shall eat. Ye shall not eat one day, nor two days, nor five days, neither ten days, nor twenty days, but even a whole month, until it come out at your nostrils, and it be loathsome unto you, because that ye have despised the Lord which is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why came we forth out of Egypt? And Moses said, the people among whom I am are 600,000 footmen. And thou hast said, I will give them flesh that they eat a whole month. Shall the flocks and the herds be slain for them to suffice them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to suffice them? The Lord said unto Moses, Is the Lord's hand waxed short? Thou shalt see now whether my word shall come to pass unto thee or not. And now our text. And Moses went out and, all the pe- and told the people the words of the Lord and gathered the seventy men of the elders of the people and set them round about the tabernacle. And the Lord came down in a cloud and spake unto him and took of the spirit that was upon him and gave it unto the seventy elders. And it came to pass that when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and did not cease. But there remained two of the men in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad, and the name of the other Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them, and they were of them that were written, but went not out unto the tabernacle, and they prophesied in the camp. And there ran a young man, and told Moses, and said, Eldad and Medad do prophesy in the camp. And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his young men, answered and said, My Lord Moses, forbid them. And Moses said unto him, Envious thou for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And Moses gat him into the camp, he and the elders of Israel. This far we read the word of God. 
having laid down his life on the tree of the cross to atone for sin, and having risen the third day to show that he had conquered the power and the curse of sin and was indeed our living Savior, our Lord showed himself for 40 more days to his disciples that he was alive. Then he ascended into heaven and sat at the right hand of God and ten days later did another amazing wonder work in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, but one that the church, though she'd been told he would do, was not yet really expecting. He poured out his spirit on his church. That church was represented, we read in Acts 1 and 2 by the 120 believers that were gathered there in the upper room. On them the Spirit came. And as the church grew and expanded, the Holy Spirit, though not poured out a second time, still filled those also who believed. Of that outpouring of the Spirit, Acts 2 spoke. And the three signs of the outpouring of the Spirit are instructive for you and to me, both in demonstrating that the Spirit was poured out and also what that wonder meant for us. In the first place, we read that there was a sound as of a rushing mighty wind. You cannot see the wind, but the wind has power and you can see its effects. And so we're taught that the Holy Spirit, being himself God, is invisible to you and to me, so invisible that we might deny that he even exists as men deny that there is a God, but the effects of his working are evident for all to see and prove to the believer that there is a Holy Spirit. That you believe is the work of the Holy Spirit that you and I are preserved, that we are together in one body, that we serve one another in love is the work of the Holy Spirit. Then there were those cloven tongues as a fire that sat upon each of them, a reminder that the Spirit is a sanctifying Spirit, a purifying Spirit, and that the work of the Holy Spirit is, among other things, to cleanse you and me and the church of Christ from sin, indwelling sin, remaining sin, and purify and sanctify us more and more as the church and the people of God to live to his praise. Really, that sign spoke of the Spirit's work in salvation. There are more aspects to the Spirit's work than only the work of salvation. We sang from Psalm 104, the work of the Spirit in providence, the work of the Holy Spirit causing uh, life to come forth, the trees to put out leaves, the, the grass to grow and become green, the animals to bring forth their young. Everything Christ does, also as the Lord of creation, he does through his Holy Spirit. There is his work in providence. There is, though, his work in salvation, of which you and I are most familiar, and that second sign, the sign of him as a fire, underscores that he sanctifies. And then the third sign of the outpouring of the Spirit pointed to yet another aspect of the Spirit's work, 
one that's more to the point of our text today, that is his coming upon the members of the church to equip us to speak as prophets. And let's not limit it just to the role of prophets, really to equip us to be those who fill the office of all believer, prophets, priests, and kings. That work, too, we cannot do except the Holy Spirit fill us. And the outpouring of the Spirit and the signs that accompany it underscore the need for the Spirit to be office bearers, not just those holding the special offices, but those who hold the office of all believer. That, of course, meant that Pentecost was a great advance in the Old Testament and before the outpouring of the Spirit there were prophets, there were priests, and there were kings, but not every believer held such an office. There were the special offices. Moses and Joshua held them. But now in the New Testament, you are, and I am, not just I as a minister, but I as a child of God, am anointed with a spirit to speak the wonderful things of God. What happened 50 days after Christ arose was prefigured 1,500 or more years before he was even born in the incident recorded in our text. What happened when God took of the spirit of Moses and put it on 70 elders was not just an analogy to Pentecost, not just a comparison, but a prefiguring, a typical, that is, a historical type or prophetic event. That comes out partly when Moses says unto them, Envious thou for my sake, there are men prophesying, Moses, you should tell them to stop it, you are our leader. And Moses says, Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. That wish of Moses was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. What we have in our text then is a prefiguring, a type or historical prophetic event that points to the day of Pentecost, but certainly is only a type. That is, is not the day of Pentecost itself. Of course, the time difference makes that clear for one thing. 1,500 years later, Pentecost happened. In the second place, Moses is but a picture of Christ. Now, you cannot have Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit until Jesus Christ came in the flesh and atoned for sin. Moses does not do that for the people of God. And so this cannot be Pentecost. But in the third place, what makes evident that the event recorded in our text is only a type is that it happens in response to Moses' sinful complaint. People are complaining yet again. And Moses, instead of telling them that their issue is not with Moses, but is with God, takes it very personally. And when he goes to God in prayer, he doesn't go to God in prayer as the intercessor of the Israelites saying, this is their need, Father, and now supply their need. 
But he goes to God in prayer as one who distances himself from the Israelites. He is sick and tired of them. And to God he says, would you please just kill me? I don't want to do this anymore. He's complaining. And the answer of Jehovah to that complaint is, I'm not going to kill you yet. But I will do something to show that the burden does not fall all on you. I will anoint 70 more men with your spirit. When, by contrast, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost, that was not in response to a complaint of our Lord and Savior. It did not indicate that Jesus Christ could not bear the burden of his people all himself, but rather it magnified Christ as the only and the complete Savior. Let's see those points more clearly this morning from our text under the theme, the divine anointing of the 70 elders. Notice first that they were anointed with Moses' spirit, which is not to say it wasn't Christ's spirit, as we will see. In the second place, it caused them to prophesy. And thirdly, that this magnified the Spirit's work. That spirit which Moses had was the Holy Spirit. And the spirit, therefore, that went from Moses and came upon the 70 elders was the Holy Spirit. That's evident in the text, first of all, from verse 29. Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put His Spirit upon them. Uh, Jehovah says to Moses, I'll take of your spirit and I'll put it on the 70. And Moses in his answer shows that he understands very well that his spirit is not a spirit that originated in him. It's a spirit that was given to him. It is therefore the Holy Spirit that called and equipped him to be the leader of the Israelites. And this spirit is Jehovah's spirit. And this spirit now goes to the 70. In the second place, it becomes evident that this is the spirit of Christ and of Jehovah that Moses has because without that spirit, Moses could not have functioned as a type of Jesus Christ, as the mediator of God's covenant people. Without that Holy Spirit, Moses could not have received the law from God, could not have written the first five books of the Bible could not lead God's people from the picture of the bondage of sin through the wilderness, the picture of the trials and troubles of this life, unto Canaan, the picture of heaven. And so the spirit of which our text speaks is that third person of the Trinity. Himself eternal. Himself omnipotent and all-powerful which is later poured out on the day of Pentecost. That spirit that has always worked in the church of Jesus Christ from the day of Adam and Eve's fall into sin, and the spirit that renewed them and regenerated them and worked faith in that gospel promise of Genesis 3.15, that same spirit is the spirit poured out on Pentecost and the spirit that's given to the 70 elders. 
And now when we read that that spirit is given to the 70, remember again the different works of the spirit, providence, salvation, that is the applying of the benefits of salvation personally, and then equipping for office, and understand that it's in that last sense that the text is speaking of taking of Moses' spirit and giving it to the others. There's an office that God has for them. It's a temporary office. That it is, however, a specific office with a specific calling is evident from the fact that they must be chosen, these 70, from among those who already are elders. When leaving Israel and when Moses' father-in-law sees the people of Israel, rather when leaving Egypt. And when Moses' father-in-law sees the people leaving Egypt, he says to Moses, you can't do this. This isn't going to work. He sees all the people coming to Moses with all their problems, and Moses has to judge them. And he says to Moses, you need helpers. And so soon after leaving Egypt already, elders are appointed, men who are over tens and fifties and hundreds, so that there's something of a, I call it a hierarchy, but the point is, there are different people to go to. There's an avenue to follow when you have a cause and you need help addressing your cause. The men already exist, and they are men who are set aside for a particular work to be an elder in the Old Testament. But now out of that group, 70 are chosen for a very specific task task is to assist Moses in two ways. On the one hand, to be to him advisors and helpers and men who can give counsel and bear the burden of the people. And on the other hand, to speak the word of God. It really is at the heart of the calling of every special office in the church, and it's at the heart of the calling of the office of all believer, to speak the word of God. What is it that the pastor must do for you? He must speak the word. He must preach the gospel. What do you expect the elders to do? Of course they rule over. They go in and out among. They bring, they bring the word of God. What do you expect the deacons to do? Of course, they gather the alms and they distribute the alms, but always with the comfortable words from Scripture at the heart of the calling of every office bearer is to bring the word. And these 70 were to do that too. They helped Moses by teaching the people the law of God that had been written down now in the first five books of the Bible, or at least some of those five have been written. That is their work, their office. And now God calls them to it. And he equips them for it. And that's the point of anointing. When the Holy Spirit comes upon a man, that is a man who's going to fill an office, that Holy Spirit indicates that that man is chosen for the office and then equips that man for the work of the office. When Jehovah says, I will take of the spirit that I've put on you, Moses, and I will put it on the 70, he is saying, as it were, to those 70, 
to all of Israel, there are more men than just Moses who have the ability, who are equipped, and who are called to bring the word of God. Do not despise them when they bring you that word. Listen. They speak out of the power and equipping of the Spirit. It's in that way that the event recorded in our text is a prefiguring of Pentecost. For what happened at Pentecost was that you and I, oh, we weren't alive yet, believers in the church were given an office. You and I come and share in that office when we're regenerated, when we are united to Christ by faith. Then two aspects of the Spirit's work come to us at the same time in the New Testament. On the one hand, the saving benefits of Christ are given to us through regeneration but also by virtue of being regenerated, united to Christ by a true and living faith, we become Christians. Lord's Day 12, question and answer 32. We partake of the anointing of Jesus Christ. Something not everyone in the Old Testament did. Because you and I have always had the Spirit, that is, from the moment of our regeneration. And especially those of us born and raised in the covenant might not remember a time when we did not have the Spirit in this sense, to equip us to be prophets, priests, and kings. Let's underscore and drive home the fact that the church did not always. What that means practically is not that we don't need pastors, elders, and deacons anymore. Some will go in that direction. If we're all holding office, then we don't need the special offices. But the New Testament itself underscores the need for the special offices in the church. But what it does underscore is that you and I are called and equipped of God to represent him. In the Old Testament, as it were. But when the enemy came, of course, the men of Israel had to draw their swords and go fight the enemy. But the real leaders of the spiritual battle against sin were the prophets, the priests, and the kings. And now you and I might look to someone else in the church and say, well, they're the leader. But you and I are called and equipped to fight sin. To give the devil an answer when he tempts and taunts us. And the answer being, it is written. You and I are called and equipped to go to the unbelieving co-worker or unbelieving neighbor and say, Thus saith the Lord. In a spirit of meekness, of love for the neighbor's or co-worker's soul, but still, we don't say, I'm going to not witness to Jehovah's name. I'm not going to publicly 
manifest that I'm a child of God, instead being filled with the Spirit poured out on Pentecost, we say, I have an office. I have a calling. I have a responsibility. And my responsibility is to use, or rather, to exercise the gifts the Holy Spirit has given me in the service of Jehovah God. There's a sphere in which we carry out that work that we ought to find very, very pleasant. And that's the church of Jesus Christ. I spoke of speaking to unbelievers. But here in the body of Christ, we manifest the communion of saints. What is it to manifest the communion of saints? It is to be ready to go to a brother or sister and help him or her in his and her godly walk. That includes, but it's more than bringing a meal to somebody who needs a meal and helping someone out in some other tangible, physical, earthly way. It includes, but it's more than. It's in the office of all believer, in the authority that you and I have, that we go to the brother who sins and call him to repentance. It's an exercise of the office of all believer that when we bring the meal or some other tangible indication of love, we say also to the brother or sister, be encouraged. The Lord loves you and we bring the word. This is part of the work that we have is holding the office of all believer. Not the least aspect of that work from the viewpoint of our text and the outpouring of the Spirit is that we speak to them the wonderful works of God. Now it's not an option for you and for me to be a prophet, priest, and king in the sense in which Lord's Day 32 speaks of it. We don't say, I will today and I won't tomorrow. I will to that person and I won't to that person. We are anointed. The Lord commands us. And when we sometimes say, but I'm scared, but I'm too timid, but I'm not sure how I'll be received, the Lord says, as he does really to Moses, I'm not I with you. Don't look at yourself. Am not I with you. I called you to this. I equip you for this. Go in trust that the Lord through you will accomplish his purpose. That beautiful work of the Spirit equipping you and me to be prophets as well as priests and kings is not divorced from the saving work of God. I've been distinguishing between the Holy Spirit in his regenerating, preserving, sanctifying, glorifying, justifying work and the work of the Holy Spirit in his equipping us as office of all believer and the distinction must be made but not that to leave the impression that the equipping of the Spirit of us to be prophets, priests, and kings is unrelated to salvation for one thing. 
both the sanctifying, saving gifts of the Spirit and the anointing of the Spirit as prophets, priests, and kings come only to the elect. There's a little hint of that in the text. These 70 who are appointed are written. The Bible indicates that. Verse 26, Eldad and Medad are among them that were written. And the point is that Even of these 70, there had to be a record that these 70 were appointed. If any man, a 71st man, says, I too, I too have that spirit, you too may listen to me, then the Israelite can say, you're not written. Your name is not on this list. I need not view you the same way I view them. But always the writing of a man's name in a book is a picture of the work of God electing from all eternity and writing our name in the book of life. But even more, the relationship to the saving work of God is that the spirit that comes upon us is the spirit of Christ, which he earned for sinners in dying on the cross. Here Moses is clearly the imperfect type. Not only does he not die on the cross, but his own sins show themselves. He's frustrated, he's angry, he is himself complaining, and the spirit that has come upon him, he is suggesting to Jehovah God, is not enough of an equipment for him to do the work he's called to do. An answer the Lord could have said, Moses, I need to teach you some doctrine. You need to learn to trust and obey. The Lord is very compassionate to Moses and is to you and to me more often than not when we come to him in our weaknesses and with our needs. And he says, not just would you trust and obey, but he says often, I see what you're saying and I'm going to provide for your needs. And he does that to Moses and gives Moses 70 men. But in what contrast he stands there to Christ. Christ who had a work greater than that of Moses. Moses had, shall I say merely, to lead two million people through the wilderness from Egypt to Canaan. Jesus Christ has the blood and the sins of all his people on him on his shoulders, and on his back. And he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and from there to the high priest's palace and Pilate's, and from there to the cross. And not once does he say to Christ, to God, I cannot do this. I need help. He cried. He cried in anguish, but his cries were not complaints because of the work he must do so much as they were an experiencing the wrath of God for sin. So when he went to the cross by which he earned for us this gift of the Spirit, he showed that he was our only sufficient and complete mediator. Then on the day of Pentecost, when he poured out the Spirit on the church, he was really showing the same thing. Moses' Spirit goes to the 70. 
because Moses cannot do the work alone. But on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out on the church, do not get the impression that that was Christ saying, I can't do the work of representing God and serving in his cause all alone. I need help. Will you please help me? No. It was Jesus Christ saying, I can do the work alone. I do do the work alone. But instead of doing the work alone, apart from you, I do that work alone, but through you. And you ought to be, and I, absolutely amazed that you've been set apart to represent Jehovah God, his cause and his covenant. And that Jesus Christ says, to do that I will work in and through you. And then at the end of the day that you and I should say, and yet it was not I, but it was he. The effect of the outpouring of the Spirit on the 70 is that they prophesied. That is specifically the word of the text, verse 25, when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. And even those two, Eldad and Medad, who went not unto the tabernacle, prophesied in the camp. We're not told what the content of their prophecy was. But in all likelihood, they did not prophesy of new, as of yet unknown things. The prophets of God did that sometimes, didn't they? Isaiah, Jeremiah, and other of the prophets recorded in Scripture would tell the people of God of things that would happen in the future that Israel had not yet known about. Probably the 70 did not do that. We don't know for sure, but the reason I say probably they did not is that Moses still is unique as a prophet. And even other times in the Old Testament, there's a distinction between those who were prophets through whom and to whom the Lord revealed himself by dreams and visions, and on the other hand, those who prophesied, who, not receiving dreams and visions, spoke in accordance with the word of God. Let me give an example. We read of Miriam, Exodus 15, that she prophesied. We read of Huldah later that she prophesied. And I'm not limiting what I say only to women. There were also men who prophesied but whose prophesying was not a receiving of dreams and visions and new revelations, but a reminding the people of what God had already said. And that's probably what these 70 did. Certainly, that is what the 120 did in the upper room and as they went about Jerusalem, as we read of them in Acts 2. They spoke the wonderful works of God, what were these wonderful works of God? That Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. That when he had died on the cross, as many remembered he had just some days earlier, he wasn't just another man dying on another cross, but he was the Son of God 
dying to satisfy the wrath of God for the sins of God's people. That God raised him from the dead. That God exalted him to his right hand. That he is the Lord and Savior of the church. These are the wonderful works of God. It is true that on the day of Pentecost, they spoke those wonderful works of God in different tongues. And that was amazing. Languages that were existing languages, known languages, but not languages that these 120 believers themselves had learned or spoke before. That is amazing, but what also strikes the people who hear them is not only that they are speaking in tongues, but that they are speaking the wonderful works of God. And it's at that point that our issue with the Pentecostals and the Charismatics comes to the fore. The speaking in different languages was a sign of the outpouring of the Spirit. We don't need the sign anymore. We know the Spirit's poured out. We don't need it proven to us. What we must still do is speak the wonderful works of God. And there is the sign that one is Spirit-filled in the New Testament. Not that he speaks gibberish that somebody can't understand anyway, but that he testifies of the glory of God, the greatness of God, the love of God, the righteousness of God, the mercy of God to all around. It's that that drew the attention of the people, both in the case of the 70 elders prophesying and of the 120 believers. The 68 men are by the tabernacle. It may be that some are worshiping in the tabernacle and hear them. But if that's not the case, certainly those two who stay in the camp, Eldad and Medad, as they prophesy, draw the attention of the people. And in the case of the 120, they're speaking the wonderful works of God, draw the attention of all those who are in Jerusalem for the feast, remember, of Pentecost. In the Old Testament, Pentecost was a feast. It was a feast in which the Israelites commemorated some of the harvest, the harvest of some of the grains. It was a feast at which they took the first fruits of that harvest to the temple. And so, Jesus Christ pouring out his spirit on the day of Pentecost is telling you and me There's going to be a great harvest of the work of Christ on the cross, a great harvest in the glorious salvation we'll have to all eternity. And you have the first part of the enjoyment of that harvest now because the Holy Spirit is in you and upon you. In other words, whenever we lose sight of heaven, or if ever we forget about heaven, or if ever we forget that heaven is our home and it's the purpose for which we've been saved and it's our hope, then we're also forgetting that the Spirit has been given us and that we have already now the first part, the down payment of that glorious inheritance. It's the drawing 
of the many people's attention to this wonderful work of God that is the occasion for a mixed reaction, both on the part of the 120 and on the part of the 70. And we read of that mixed reaction in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. Some are amazed, some doubt, and some say these men are drunk. And it takes Peter preaching a sermon and showing that what's happening is the outworking and fulfilling of prophecy for some to believe. Also in Israel, some doubt. Moses, stop them from speaking. My Lord Moses, forbid them. And Moses says, no. Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Here too, further to underscore that the event in our text in which these 70 prophesy is a prefiguring of Pentecost, but only a type, only a picture, we have to see two things. The first that the spirit of Moses put upon those 70, and we never read throughout anywhere in the Old Testament of successors to those 70 when they die. There are always elders over 10 and 50 and 100 uh, over the different cities of Israel. There are always those. We don't ever read of successors to these 70. They're given for a limited time. Whereas the office of all believer continues now and will until our Lord returns and into eternity. In the second place, the King James says in verse 25 that when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and did not cease, indicating that they continued in this office and the work of it indefinitely. But in fact, the Hebrew is, they prophesied and did not do so again. And they did so no more. You don't know Hebrew, and I'm not going to take the time to point you to many other passages where the translation of the Hebrew word here is exactly the opposite of what we have in our text. But I say nonetheless that what the Spirit is saying is not that they prophesied for the rest of their life without ceasing, but rather that even the work they did was limited by time. And that's not true of the work that you and I do as prophets, priests, and kings. The office of all believer, you cannot lay down. We want to sometimes, don't we? We feel like Moses. We're sick of it. Sick of being a Christian. Look at all the trouble it brings. Trouble in the church. Trouble at work because we get accosted for our faith. Trouble, trouble, trouble. Let's just give it up. And the Lord says to you and to me, you didn't choose to be a Christian. I put you there. You can't choose not to be a Christian. I made you one. 
Now get on with it. And once again, the sufficiency, the strength, the grace to persevere is found in Christ. Let's take a lesson generally from the Israelites and from Moses when they're down. Let's not do what they did in complaining and saying, we give up, let's go back to Egypt. Let's instead go to our Lord and Savior and find in Him the grace. And that grace will be given to speak His wonderful works. How do you do that? It doesn't require one to speak a lot necessarily. And one who doesn't often speak, there are quieter people among us and everywhere, isn't inherently not fulfilling his office, whereas one who speaks a lot is inherently fulfilling the office. The question isn't how often, the question is what? And in what opportunities? And to whom? And to when? And why? Do we speak about our faith? Faith in a God who created, faith in a God who redeemed, Do you speak of the wonder work of God in your life in saving you? Is this a secret? Or do you speak to others about it? That is speaking the wonderful works of God. Certainly we do so as we teach our children and our grandchildren. But never say, I will not. You're called. As you and I fulfill that calling, and as the 70 did, we magnify the Spirit's work. When I speak thirdly of magnifying the Spirit's work, I do not mean to take the focus off Christ. I mean instead to underscore, as Reformed doctrine does, that to magnify the Spirit is to magnify Christ. Because... The Holy Spirit never works apart from Christ. It was Jesus Christ who poured out the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. It is Jesus Christ who said to his disciples that when the comforters come, he shall testify of me. The Spirit magnifies Christ. So for us to magnify the Spirit's work properly is to magnify Jesus Christ who sent him. There again, the Pentecostals and the Charismatics take a different approach. It is for them as if of the three persons of the Trinity, the Spirit is really the only one that matters. And to magnify the Spirit, to speak in tongues, to be given over to holy laughter or to holy dancing or all other fits of the Spirit of which they speak is the be-all and end-all of the Christian life for them. For the reformed believer to magnify the spirit in his anointing me, you, to be prophets, priests, and kings, is to say, what great things my Lord hath done for me. And is to say, that by the work of my Savior on the cross and the outpouring of the spirit in our hearts and lives, we are brought near to the triune God together in covenant 
fellowship. Is anything more precious, more delightful than to have friendship with Jehovah and know his toward us? The magnifying of the Spirit's work, and that is the Spirit of Christ, is a lesson that Israel needed to know. Why did she complain so often about the Lord's way for her in the wilderness? Because she forgot that the Lord was among her. How was the Lord among her? By his Spirit in Moses. It was what Moses so often forgot. It's what you and I so often forget as we set our hearts on things below. It's what we so often forget when we doubt, when we fear, even when we're afraid of what tomorrow will bring. What do we forget? The Lord is with us. Not just in his providence, not just in his omnipresence, but in his love and in his grace and in his mercy, in his holy Spirit, Israel is taught not to complain again. I'm not saying she remembered the lesson, but she's taught that. Because Jehovah must be for her sufficient. If she has nothing but manna, no quails and no fish, no leeks and no garlics, no onions and no melons, but has Jehovah, she is blessed favored, and saved. And even the Israelites need to know that, and they're taught that too in Moses' answer to those who say, forbid them. Moses' answer in essence is, forbid men to manifest the work of the Spirit, and the Spirit's presence among us, and therefore Jehovah's presence among us. Oh no. And the application to the church of Jesus Christ in the New Testament is this. Magnify the Spirit and His work in our midst. How? By recognizing whom God has appointed to be office bearers over us and honoring them for their work's sake. By exercising the gifts God has given you and me in the body of Christ. But ultimately, by beholding your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, alone, complete, and all-sufficient, and his work as being the very ground of your salvation, the possibility of your salvation, and the reason why, wonder of wonder, You are here in the body of Christ to serve and thank him. It's the more we're impressed with the fact that he has saved sinners by his grace. The more we are impressed with that, that we will not say, must I speak his wonderful works? But instead we'll say, O Lord, Give me always, I will speak thy wonderful works. And even the desire is the Spirit's work 
in us. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, magnify thy name. Do so by magnifying Jesus Christ. And may the Spirit's work in our midst and in our lives point us again to our Lord and Savior and the fullness of his salvation. And we find in him all things necessary for soul as well as body. And as we go through the wilderness of this life, keep us from murmuring and complaining. Because although trials do come to test us, Yet we must remember that we have the Spirit, and therefore the token of thy love and presence. And therefore we come to thee in supplication and not in anger or complaint. Equip and sanctify us to that end. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.